Welcome to Marilyn Lightstone Reads Vanity Fair, William Thackeray's deliciously satirical take on a money-mad society set against the backdrop of the Napoleonic Wars. We're delighted you're back for another novel in our podcast series, Marilyn Lightstone Reads. If this is your first time with us, you can find all the other novels in our series plus new episodes at classicalfm.ca or through your favorite podcast app. Now, let's turn to Marilyn as she reads William Thackeray's Vanity Fair. Chapter 2 in which Miss Sharp and Miss Sedley prepare to open the campaign. When Miss Sharp performed the heroical act mentioned in the last chapter and saw the dictionary flying over the garden to fall at Miss Jemima's feet, the young lady's face, which had worn an almost livid look of hatred, assumed a smile that perhaps was scarcely more agreeable. She sank back in the carriage, saying, so much for the dictionary, and thank God I'm out of Chiswick. Miss Sedley was almost as flurried at the defied act as Miss Jemima had been, for, consider, it was only one minute since she had left school, and the impressions of six years are not got over in that period, or even in a lifetime. She was exceedingly alarmed. How could you do that, Rebecca? Why? "'Do you think Miss Pinkerton will come out and order me back to the black hole?' said Rebecca, laughing. "'No, but I hate the house,' continued Miss Sharp in a fury. "'I hope I never set eyes on it again. "'I wish it were at the bottom of the Thames, and if Miss Pinkerton were there, I wouldn't pick her out. "'Oh, how I should like to see her floating in the water, turban and all. <gasps> "'Hush!' cried Miss Sedley. "'Why, will the footman tell tales?' cried Miss Rebecca. He may go back and tell Miss Pinkerton that I hate her with all my soul. For two years I have only had insults from her. I have been treated worse than any servant in the kitchen. I have never had a friend or a kind word except from you. I have been made to tend the little girls and to talk French until I grew sick of my mother tongue. But Miss Pinkerton doesn't know a word of French and was too proud to confess it. I believe it was that which made her part with me. And so, thank heaven for French. Vive la France! Vive Bonaparte! Oh, Rebecca! Rebecca, for shame! cried Miss Sedley, for this was the greatest blasphemy Rebecca had yet uttered. In those days, to say, long live Bonaparte, was as much to say, long live Lucifer! How can you have such wicked, revengeful thoughts? "'Revenge may be wicked, but it's natural,' answered Miss Rebecca. "'I'm no angel.' And to say the truth, she certainly was not. For it may be remarked during this little conversation, which took place as the coach rolled along lazily by the riverside, that though Miss Rebecca Sharp had twice thanked heaven, it has been, in the first place, for ridding her of somebody she hated.' and secondly for enabling her to perplex her enemies, neither of which are very kind or amiable motives. Well, Miss Rebecca was not kind or amiable. All the world used her ill, said this young misanthropist, and we may be pretty certain that people whom all the world treats ill deserve the treatment they get. The world is a looking-glass. Frown at it, 
and it will frown back. Laugh, and it is a jolly companion. If the world neglected Miss Sharp, she was never known to have done a good deed for anybody. Not everyone can have the humble and gentle temper of Miss Amelia Sedley. Miss Sharp's father was an artist who had given drawing lessons at Miss Pinkerton's school. He was a clever man, a pleasant companion, a careless student, constantly running into debt, and partial to the tavern. When he was drunk, he used to beat his wife and daughter, and the next morning, with a headache, he would rail at the world for its neglect of his genius and abuse his brother painters. As he owed money for a mile around Soho, he had thought to better his circumstances by marrying a young French opera girl. Miss Sharp never alluded to her mother's humble calling, but stated that the Entrechat were a noble family of Gascony. And, curiously, as she advanced in life, this young lady's ancestors increased in rank and splendor. Rebecca's mother had had some education elsewhere. Rebecca's mother had had some education somewhere, and her daughter spoke French with purity and a Parisian accent, a rare accomplishment which led to her engagement with Miss Pinkerton. For her mother, being dead, her father, after his third attack of delirium tremens, wrote shortly before he died a manly and pathetic letter to Miss Pinkerton, recommending his child to her protection. Rebecca was seventeen when she came to Chiswick as an articled pupil. Her duties were to talk French, and her privileges to live cost-free and with a few guineas a year, to gather scraps of knowledge from the professors who taught at the school. She was small and slight in person, pale, sandy-haired, and with eyes habitually cast down. When they looked up, they were very large, odd, and attractive, so attractive that the curate, Mr. Crisp, fresh from Oxford, fell in love with Miss Sharp, being shot dead by a glance of her eyes fired across Chiswick Church. This infatuated young man used sometimes to take tea with Miss Pinkerton, and actually proposed marriage to Miss Sharp in an intercepted note. His mother was summoned and carried off her darling boy, but the very ideal of such an eagle in the Chiswick Dovecot alarmed Miss Pinkerton. She could not entirely believe the young lady's protestations that she had never exchanged a single word with Mr. Crisp, except twice at Miss Pinkerton's own tea-table. By the side of many tall and bouncing young ladies in the school, Rebecca Sharp looked like a child, but... She had the dismal precocity of poverty. Many a debt collector had she talked into turning away from her father's door. Many a tradesman had she coaxed into good humor. She sat often with her father and heard the talk of his wild companions, ill-suited for a girl to hear. But she never had been a girl, she said. She had been a woman since she was eight years old. Oh! Why did Miss Pinkerton let such a dangerous bird into her cage? The fact is, the old lady believed Rebecca to be a meek creature. So admirably had she acted innocence when her father brought her to visit Chiswick. When Rebecca was sixteen, Miss Pinkerton majestically, with a little speech, made her a present of a doll, confiscated from a pupil. 
how father and daughter laughed as they trudged home together that evening, and how Miss Pinkerton would have raged had she seen the caricature of herself which the little mimic, Rebecca, managed to make out of her doll. Becky used to go through dialogues with it, delighting the artist's quarter. The young painters, when they came to take their gin and water with their lazy, clever senior, used to ask Rebecca if Miss Pinkerton was at home. Once, after spending a few days at Chiswick, Rebecca set up another doll as Miss Jemima, for though that honest creature had given her jelly and cake and seven shillings at parting, the girl's sense of ridicule was far stronger than her gratitude, and she sacrificed Miss Jemmy quite as pitilessly as her sister. Her father died, and she was brought to the mall as her home. The rigid formality of the place suffocated her. The prayers and the meals, the lessons and the walks, as regular as in a convent, oppressed her almost beyond endurance. She looked back to the freedom and the beggary of the old studio in Soho with so much regret that everybody, herself included, fancied she was consumed with grief for her father. She had a little room in the garret where the maids heard her walking and sobbing at night, but it was with rage, not grief. She had never mingled in the society of women. The pompous vanity of the old schoolmistress, the foolish good humour of her sister, the silly chat of the elder girls, and the frigid correctness of the governesses equally annoyed her. She had no soft maternal heart or the prattle of the younger children, with whose care she was chiefly entrusted, might have interested her, but she lived among them two years, and no one was sorry that she went away. The gentle, tender-hearted Amelia Sedley was the only person to whom she attached herself in the least, and who could help attaching herself to Amelia. The advantages of the young women around her gave Rebecca pangs of envy. What airs that girl gives herself because she is an earl's granddaughter? How they bow to that creole because of her hundred thousand pounds. I am a thousand times cleverer and more charming than her. Everyone passes me by here. And yet, when I was at my father's, did not the men give up their gayest parties in order to spend the evening with me? She determined to get free from her prison and began to make plans for the future. She took advantage, therefore, of the learning the place offered her, and as she was already a musician and a good linguist, she speedily went through the little course of study which was considered necessary for ladies in those days. Her music she practiced incessantly, and one day was overheard to play a piece so well that Miss Pinkerton thought she could spare herself the expense of a music master for the juniors, and told Miss Sharp that she was to instruct them in music. The girl refused. I am here to speak French with the children, not to teach them music, and save you money. Pay me, and I will teach them. For five and thirty years, nobody in this house has dared to question my authority. I have nourished a viper in my bosom. A viper? A fiddlestick, said Miss Sharp. You took me because I was useful. There is no question of gratitude between us. I hate this place and want to leave it. I will do nothing here but what I am obliged to do. 
The old lady asked her if she was aware she was speaking to Miss Pinkerton. Rebecca laughed in her face with a horrid, sarcastic laughter. Give me a sum of money and get rid of me. Or, if you like, get me a good place as governess in a nobleman's family. And in their further disputes, she always repeated, Get me a situation. We hate each other, and I am ready to go. Worthy Miss Pinkerton, despite her intimidating appearance, had no will or strength like that of her little apprentice, and in vain did battle against her. When she scolded her once in public, Rebecca answered her in French, which quite routed the old woman. In order to maintain authority in her school, it became necessary to remove this rebel, this monster, this serpent, and hearing that Sir Pitt Crowley's family needed a governess, she recommended Miss Sharp for the situation, serpent as she was. I cannot certainly find fault with Miss Sharp's conduct except to myself. Her talents and accomplishments are of a high order, and in that respect at least she does credit to the school. And so the schoolmistress reconciled her conscience, and the apprentice was free. And as Miss Sedley, now sixteen, was about to leave school and had a friendship for Miss Sharp, she invited Rebecca to pass a week with her at home before starting her duties as governess. Thus the world began for these two young ladies. For Amelia, it was a new, fresh, brilliant world. It was not quite a new one for Rebecca, but even if she was not beginning the world, she was beginning it over again. By the time the young ladies reached Kensington Turnpike, Amelia had dried her tears and blushed very much when a young soldier who was riding by said, "'A damn fine gal, egad!' Before the carriage arrived in Russell Square, a great deal of conversation had taken place about the drawing-room and whether young ladies wore powder as well as hoops when presented at court." When home was reached, Miss Amelia Sedley skipped out on Samuel's arm, as happy and as handsome a girl as any in London. So all the servants thought, as they stood bobbing and smiling in the hall to welcome their young mistress. Amelia showed Rebecca every room of the house, and all her books, her piano, her dresses, necklaces, brooches, and gimcracks— she insisted upon Rebecca accepting a white cornelian necklace and a turquoise ring and a sweet sprigged muslin dress, which was too small for her now, though it would fit her friend perfectly. And she decided to present a white cashmere shawl to her friend, for her brother Joseph had just brought her two from India. When Rebecca saw the two magnificent cashmere shawls, she said with perfect truth that it must be delightful to have a brother— and easily won the pity of the tender-hearted Amelia for being alone in the world, without family or friends. "'You know, Rebecca, I shall always be your friend,' said Amelia, "'and love you as a sister. Ah, but to have kind, rich, affectionate parents who give you everything you ask for, and their love, which is more precious than all!' My poor papa could give me nothing, and I had only two frocks in all the world. Oh, and then to have a dear brother. How you must love him. Amelia laughed. What? Don't you love him? You who say you love everybody? 
Oh, yes, of course I do. Only Joseph doesn't seem to care much whether I love him or not. He gave me two fingers to shake when he arrived after ten years' absence. He is very good, but he scarcely ever speaks to me. I think he loves his pipe a great deal better than... But here Amelia checked herself. He was very kind to me as a child. I was only five when he went away. Isn't he very rich? said Rebecca. They say all Indian nabobs are enormously rich. I believe he has a very large income. And is your sister-in-law a nice pretty woman? Oh, no, Joseph is not married, said Amelia, laughing again. Rebecca protested that she had expected to see Amelia's nephews and nieces, and was quite disappointed that Mr. Sedley was not married. She was sure Amelia had said he was, and she so doted on little children. I think you must have had enough of them at Chiswick, said Amelia, rather wondering at this sudden tenderness on her friend's part. Indeed, later on, Miss Sharp would never have advanced an opinion which could so easily be seen to be untrue. But we must remember that she is but nineteen as yet, unused to the art of deceiving. Poor, innocent creature! The meaning of her queries was simply this. If Mr. Joseph Smedley is rich and unmarried, why should I not marry him? I have only a fortnight to be sure, but there is no harm in trying and she decided to make this laudable attempt. She caressed Amelia. She kissed the Cornelian necklace as she put it on, and vowed she would never part with it. When the dinner-bell rang, she went downstairs with her arm round her friend's waist. She was so agitated at the drawing-room door that she could hardly find courage to enter. "'Oh, feel my, feel my heart, how it beats, dear,' said she to her friend. "'No, it doesn't.' said Amelia. Come in. Don't be frightened. Papa won't hurt you. Chapter 3 Rebecca is in presence of the enemy. A very stout, puffy man in buckskins and hessian boots, with several immense neckcloths that rose almost to his nose, a red-striped waistcoat, and an apple-green coat with huge steel buttons, the morning costume of a dandy of those days, was reading the paper by the fire when the two girls entered. He bounced off his armchair, blushing, and hid almost his entire face in his neckcloths. "'It's only your sister, Joseph,' said Amelia, laughing and shaking the two fingers which he held out. "'I've come home for good, and this is my friend, Miss Sharp, whom you've heard me mention.' "'No, never upon my word,' said the head under the neckcloth, shaking. "'That is, yes, <laughs> what abominably cold weather, Miss, <laughs> and—' He began poking the fire with all his might, although it was the middle of June.' "'He's very handsome,' whispered Rebecca to Amelia, rather loud. Oh, "'Do you think so? I'll tell him.' "'Oh, darling, not for worlds,' said Miss Sharp, staring back as timid as a fawn. She had previously made a respectful, virgin-like curtsy to the gentleman, her modest eyes gazing so perseveringly on the carpet that it was a wonder how she should have seen him. Oh, "'Thank you for the beautiful shawls, brother.' "'Are they not beautiful, Rebecca?' "'Oh, heavenly!' said Miss Sharp, and her eyes went from the carpet straight to the chandelier. 
Joseph continued clattering at the poker and tongs, puffing and turning red. I can't make you such handsome presents, Joseph, but while I was at school, I embroidered for you a beautiful pair of braces. Good God, Amelia! What do you mean? And he plunged so mightily at the bell rope that it came away in his hand, increasing his confusion. For heaven's sakes, see if my buggy's at the door. I, I can't wait. I, I must go. At this minute, their father walked in. What's the matter, Emmy? Joseph wants me to see if his buggy is at the door. What is a buggy, Papa? It is a one-horse litter, said the old gentleman. Joseph burst out into a wild fit of laughter. Meeting Miss Sharp's eye, he stopped suddenly, as if he had been shot. "'This young lady is your friend?' asked Mr. Sedley. "'Miss Sharp, I am very happy to see you. Have you and Emmy been quarrelling already with Joseph, so that he wants to be off?' "'I promised to dine with Bonamy, sir,' said Joseph. "'I'm not dressed for dinner here.' "'Oh, fie! Didn't you tell your mother you would dine here? Isn't he handsome enough to dine anywhere, Miss Sharp?' Miss Sharp looked at her friend, and they both set off in a fit of laughter, highly agreeable to the old gentleman. "'Did you ever see a pair of buckskins like his at Miss Pinkerton's?' "'Gracious heavens, father!' cried Joseph. "'There now, I have hurt his feelings. "'Oh, come, Joseph, be friends with Miss Sharp, and let us all go to dinner.' "'There's a pillow, Joseph, just as you like it, and the best turbot in Billingsgate.' "'Come, sir, walk downstairs with Miss Sharp,' said the father, and he walked merrily off. "'If Miss Rebecca Sharp had determined upon conquering this big bow, "'I don't think we have any right to blame her. "'For though the task of husband-hunting is generally entrusted by young ladies to their mamas, "'recollect that Miss Sharp had no kind parent to arrange these delicate matters for her. "'If she did not get a husband for herself, no one else would take the trouble.' What causes respectable parents to take up their carpets, set their houses topsy-turvy, and spend a fifth of their year's income in ball suppers and ice champagne? Is it a pure wish to see young people happy and dancing? Oh, sure. They want to marry their daughters. And just as honest Mrs. Sedley had already arranged little schemes for the settlement of her Amelia, so also had our unprotected Rebecca decided to do her very best to secure the husband who was even more necessary for her than for her friend. She had a vivid imagination and had read the Arabian Nights. She had already built herself a most magnificent castle in the air, of which she was mistress, with a husband somewhere in the background. She had arrayed herself in shawls, turbans, and diamond necklaces, and had mounted upon an elephant to pay a visit to the Grand Mogul. Charming visions! Many a fanciful young creature besides Rebecca Sharp had indulged in these delightful daydreams before now. Joseph Sedley was twelve years older than his sister Amelia. He was in the East India Company's civil service in the Bengal Division, the tax collector of Bogley Walla, an honorable and lucrative post, as everybody knows. Bogley Walla is situated in a fine, lonely, marshy, jungly district, where you might flush out a tiger. 
Ramgunj, where there is a magistrate, is only forty miles off, and there is a cavalry station about thirty miles farther. Joseph had lived for eight years of his life quite alone at this charming place, seeing a Christian face only about twice a year. Luckily, he had caught a liver complaint, for the cure of which he returned to Europe. He did not live with his family in London, but had lodgings of his own, like a gay young bachelor. Before he went to India, he was too young to partake of the delightful pleasures of a man about town, but he plunged into them eagerly on his return. He drove his horses in the park. He dined at the fashionable taverns. He went to the theatres or the opera, laboriously clothed in tights and a cocked hat. On returning to India, and ever after, he used to talk of this pleasant time with great enthusiasm, and give you to understand that he and Beau Brumel were the leading bucks of the day. But he was as lonely in London as in his jungle at Boggley Walla. He scarcely knew a single soul in the city, and were it not for his doctor, he must have died of loneliness. He was lazy and peevish. The appearance of a lady frightened him beyond measure. Hence, he seldom joined his family in Russell Square, where there was plenty of gaiety and where his father's jokes affronted him. His bulk caused Joseph much anxious thought and alarm. Now and then he would make a desperate attempt to lose weight, but his indolence and love of good living speedily got the better of him. He never was well-dressed, but he took huge pains to adorn his big person. His valet made a fortune out of his wardrobe. His dressing-table was covered with pomades and essences. He had tried, in order to give himself a waist, every waistband then invented. Like most fat men, he had his clothes made too tight, and of the most brilliant colors and youthful cut. When dressed at last, he would go out to take a drive with nobody in the park, and then would come back to dress again and go and dine with nobody at the Piazza Coffee House. He was as vain as a girl, and extremely shy. If Miss Rebecca can get the better of him at her first entrance into life, she is a young person of no ordinary cleverness. Her first move showed considerable skill. When she called Sedley a very handsome man, she knew that Amelia would tell her mother, who would probably tell Joseph, or who, at any rate, would be pleased by the compliment paid to her son. Perhaps, too, Joseph Sedley would overhear the compliment, and he did hear. The praise thrilled through every fiber of his big body and made it tingle with pleasure. Then, however, came a recoil. Is the girl making fun of me? He thought, and straight away he bounced towards the bell and was about to retreat, as we have seen, when he was persuaded to stay. He conducted the young lady down to dinner in a dubious and agitated frame of mind. Does she really think I am handsome? thought he, or is she making game of me? We have talked of Joseph Sedley being as vain as a girl. Yet girls might say, with perfect reason, of one of their own sex, she is as vain as a man. 
the bearded creatures are quite as eager for praise, quite as fussy and proud of their appearance, and quite as conscious of their powers of fascination as any coquette. Downstairs, then, they went, Joseph blushing, Rebecca very modest. She was dressed in white, with bare shoulders, the picture of unprotected innocence and humble virgin simplicity. I must be very quiet, thought she, and very much interested about India. Now, Mrs. Sedley had prepared a fine curry for her son, and in the course of dinner this dish was offered to Rebecca. What is it? said she, turning an appealing look to Mr. Joseph. Mm, capital, said he. His mouth was full, his face quite red with gobbling. Mm, mother, mm, it's as good as my own curries in India. Mm, mm. Oh, I must try some if it is an Indian dish, said Miss Rebecca. I am sure everything must be good that comes from there. She had never tasted the dish before. Have some, Miss Sharp. Do you find it as good as everything else from India? <laughs> said Mr. Sedley. Oh, excellent, said Rebecca, who was suffering tortures with the cayenne pepper. Try a chili with it, Miss Sharp, said Joseph, really interested. Oh, a chili, said Rebecca, gasping. Oh, 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 yes. She thought a chili was something cool, as its name suggested. Oh, how fresh and green they look, she said, and put one into her mouth. It was hotter than the curry. She could bear it no longer. She laid down her fork. Oh, uh, water! <laughs> For heaven's sakes, water! she cried. Mr. Sedley Sr. burst out laughing. He was a coarse man from the stock exchange, where they love practical jokes. Samuel, give Miss Sharp some water! His laugh was echoed by Joseph. The lady smiled a little, but thought poor Rebecca suffered too much. She would have liked to choke old Sedley, but she swallowed her mortification, and as soon as she could speak, said, with a comical air, I ought to have remembered the pepper which the Princess of Persia puts in the cream tarts in the Arabian Nights. <laughs> Do you put cayenne in your cream tarts in India, sir? Old Sedley laughed and thought Rebecca was a good-humoured girl. Joseph said, Cream tart? <laughs> Our cream is very bad in Bengal. We generally use goat's milk, and, oh, God, you know, I've got to prefer it. You won't like everything from India now, Miss Sharp, said the old gentleman. When the ladies had retired after dinner, the wily old fellow said to his son, Have a care, Joe. That girl is setting her cap at you. Oh, nonsense, said Joe, highly flattered. There was a girl of Dum-Dum, a daughter of Cutler of the Artillery, and afterwards married to the surgeon, who made a dead set at me in 1804, at me and Mulligatawny, a devilish good fellow, Mulligatawny. Well, sir, the artillery gave a ball, and Quinton of the King's Fourteenth said to me, sadly, said he, I bet you thirteen to ten that Sophie Cutler hooks either you or Mulligatawny before the rains. Done, says I, and, oh, it gads her, this claret's very good, Adamson's. A slight snore was the only reply. The honest stockbroker was asleep, and so the rest of Joseph's story was lost. 
but he was always talkative in men's company, and had told this delightful tale many scores of times to Dr. Gollop when he came to inquire about his liver. Being an invalid, Joseph Sedley contented himself with a bottle of claret besides his Madeira at dinner, and managed a couple of plates of strawberries and cream, and twenty-four little rout cakes that were lying neglected in a plate near him, and he thought a great deal about the girl upstairs. Oh, a nice merry young creature! How she looked at me when I picked up her handkerchief at dinner! She dropped it twice! <laughs> "'Who's that singing in the drawing-room? "'Gad, shall I go up and see?' "'But his modesty came rushing upon him. "'His father was asleep. "'His hat was in the hall. "'There was a hackney-coach standing nearby. "'I'll go to the theatre, said he, "'and slipped away without waking his father. "'There goes Joseph,' said Amelia, "'who was looking from the window of the drawing-room "'while Rebecca was singing at the piano.' "'Miss Sharp has frightened him away,' said Mrs. Sedley. "'Poor Joe! Why will he be so shy?' Thanks for listening to Marilyn Lightstone Reads Vanity Fair. This episode was produced by Justin Eacock, executive producer Moses Nimer. This is the latest book in our podcast series, Marilyn Lightstone Reads. Other selections include Showboat, Anne of Green Gables, The Age of Innocence, Pride and Prejudice, and The Woman in White. You can also help support this podcast by recommending it to your friends and leaving a five-star review in your preferred podcast store. And while you're there, look for a variety of other quality podcasts proudly presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.